This is Pastor Devin, and I just want to say thanks for joining us, and I hope and pray that this message is an encouragement to your life today. Great to have you here. We are in a series, which is a book study on the book of James. We've been in it. Someone just asked me, how much longer will we be in the book of James? Because it's heavy. It's, it's, it's meaty. And if you've been with us for any part of this series, you, you could say amen to that. James doesn't pull any punches. Uh, it speaks truth, but very practical for us. The Proverbs of the New Testament. So we're just going to frame today by just saying this. If you haven't been with us, James has been arguing up until this point that there are two ways uh, to live your life. He's helped us to, to define and differentiate between godly wisdom, true wisdom, and worldly false wisdom. Wisdom, And for the purpose of our time together today, I I want us to think of it this way. False worldly wisdom or true godly wisdom, whichever one you choose to live by, those are the walls of the house. And now James is going to talk to us today about the foundation upon which those walls are built. Okay? So we're talking this morning about humility and pride. Those are the two foundations upon which the way we live will play itself out. True wisdom, godly wisdom, is built upon humility. And false wisdom, worldly wisdom, is built on this eroding, brittle foundation of pride and arrogance. So we just pick it up at the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 13. James says this, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow, James says. What is your life? You are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It doesn't appear here that James is interested in building our self-esteem in any way. Verse 15, but instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this and do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Verse 17, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James makes a point, just a couple things right out of the gate, just to remind us. First and foremost, we lack the foresight to know what will happen tomorrow. First. Secondly, we lack the power to control the length of our lives. Very simply, let's just... Let's just briefly look at those two thoughts before we move on. Yes, cognitively, practically, we would all agree that we don't know what will happen tomorrow. And although we do have some influence on the length of our lives, how many are more concerned about taking care of this body that you've been entrusted with? You can do some things to not live so recklessly. You can pass on the burger and get a salad every now and then. You can influence the length of your life, but you don't have control. I've, I've had very healthy friends, much more healthy than me physically, that were taken. So influence, yes, not control, and yet we live in a way that makes great boasts about our futures. And we, we find security in convincing ourselves that we're in control. And we become anxious when we start to be faced with the reality that we are not in control. Now we have, we have moments of clarity, reminders that this life in its fragility is not guaranteed to us. A, a loved one 
suddenly passes away. An accident happens without warning, without any heads up, and we're reminded that we are not in control. But we very quickly find our way back to living with the false security, the false wisdom of our plans, of our abilities, of our knowledge, and we fool ourselves into thinking that we are in control. James says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And I would advocate that he's actually generous in his assessment of our ignorance because the truth is, we don't know what the rest of today holds. I I don't know what comes after this. I mean, my plan, my plan is to see what God would want to do among us this morning. I'm going to baptize some people that have committed their lives to Christ, want to take that next step. And then after service, we'll spend some time cleaning up and tidying up. And then Ashley and I will return trailers and park things and get things tied up. I'll get home around 2.30 or 3. And I'll have some lunch. And we'll get to sit down. And the kids will behave wonderfully. And there will be no discipline issues. And they will just be glad that we provide for them. And they will love their siblings. That's how I, I, that's how I see it in my mind happening. And then... We'll just hang out. We'll be together. I may rest a little bit, and then later on tonight, maybe I'll get a chance to hang out with some friends. And then we do this thing in our house. We we have four children, and uh, as each one goes to bed, I count them down. Um, So at 7 o'clock, we put our youngest to bed, who's three, and I walk out after putting him to bed, and I go, one down, three to go. Okay, and and then at 8 o'clock, I put our second down. And I walk out and go, okay, two down. And at nine o'clock, we put our older two down. And at that point, how many, how many know that is the peace that passes all understanding? <laughs> oh, we decide. And I walk out to my family room and I sit down. Here's, here's my habit. I pray. That's what I'm planning to do today. These are my plans. I plan to pray over the prayer requests that are turned in today. I personally love doing that, praying over them by name. And then I consider all of the people that weren't here today. I start thinking about them and how much I love them. Even when they're not here, I still love them. And then I start critiquing the message and ripping it apart. It's an awesome time. It's awesome. It's awesome. I think about all the things that went wrong and all the things that I should have said that I didn't say and all the things that I did say that I shouldn't have said. And that's my plan. And the reality is, the truth is, I don't even know if I'm going to make it to lunch. I don't know. There isn't anyone in this room whose life can't be changed with their cell phone buzzing in their pocket right now. Because we're fragile. And James is pointing this out and he says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring and I think he's generous in his assessment because the truth is, we don't know what the rest of today brings. And then he adds this next line, for what is your life? You are but a mist. I want us to understand that word in the Greek. That word mist is like a... a, a vapor. So in, in your mind, don't think dense, heavy fog in the morning. Think e-cigarette puff. <laughs> and that's what James says your life is. Your life is but a p- It's a vapor. And James is saying not only do we lack the knowledge and the foresight, but we lack the power to control the outcome. That is the reality. How many know that's, that's not a good start for swagger? I'm ignorant and I will only be here for a second. Hear me roar. <laughs> what? 
That's kind of a shaky ground for bravado. God, on the other hand, is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. In fact, the final battle of Armageddon, the great final battle for all of time, the great enemies of the Lord have gathered in the valley of Armageddon, and Christ shows up and says, I am, and boom, it's over. He's all-powerful. It's not like the Hundred Years' War. No, that's not how this plays out. He says, I am, and it's done. He's all-powerful. We also know that he's all-knowing. He knows everything from the end to the beginning. He's omniscient. He knows every detail at every level of how all of those details and events form this history of sorts. So not only is he all-knowing and all-powerful, but the Bible also teaches, and this just stretches our brain, that he's everywhere at once, and everywhere that he is, his power resides. This is where he's wholly different than you and me. Let me just have some real talk with you. Have, how many of you have ever stretched yourself too thin? You, you've overcommitted yourself. You bit off more than you can chew. Ever done that? You find yourself thinking, I wasn't as equipped for this as I thought I was. God has never felt that. He's never gone, oh man, I really got myself in over my head here in the Middle East. Whew. I, uh, I, I got to pull back and re- ooh, recalibrate here a little bit. No. He's as powerful and as present in the outskirts and the universe as he is in this room right now. Think of that. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's everywhere at once omnipresent. So if we're like, I don't even know what today will bring, and even if I did, I couldn't do much about it. If that's us, and this is God, we don't really have much room for swagger or self-exaltation. We are truly a people that cannot see the forest for the trees. We get lost in the weeds. But God, God can see. God does, and he's good. How do we know that he's good? Because we can look to the cross. That's how we know he's good. He came to rescue and ransom us. He came not to condemn us. The cross is that objective evidence which lays before us, and it reminds us that regardless of difficulty, regardless of pain or uncertainty, we can look to this all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once God, and we can trust him. We can see his good in the work of cro- in, in Christ through the cross. And really, at the end of the day, it's a matter of whether our lives are rooted, planted in humility or pride. Humility does this. It readily admits, I don't know what today or tomorrow brings. I don't have control. And I choose to put my trust, my confidence in Christ, the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present. On the other hand, pride and arrogance says, I don't know what today or tomorrow brings and I don't have control but I'm going to put my trust, my confidence in my own ability, in my limited knowledge, in my plans, in my agenda, in my schedule, and with our actions, what we say is, the cross isn't enough. Christ's power and presence in my life is not enough, but I am enough and I trust in me. That's pride. Here's the challenge. Pride and humility can be these kind of ethereal virtues of sorts. I mean, how do you know if you're humble? If you think about it, humility, if, if you tell someone that you're humble, are you really humble? 
So I, I was thinking, and probably my greatest trait, my greatest characteristic is probably my humility. Wait. If I were to ask you, what has God been doing in your life? What is he saying to you? And your response is like, you know what? I just feel this deep, rooted humility taking place of my life. I just find myself being extremely humble these days. Did you just brag about humility? What? And yet, the Bible tells us to pursue humility. 1 Timothy, Romans 14. In our pursuit of humility, are, are we pursuing humility so that we might be seen as humble? It's really a slippery slope. Beyond that, what do you do with the fact that most prideful people don't know that they're arrogant and prideful? They just think they're really good at what they do. Right? It's really difficult. So how do we, how do we navigate these complex issues? How do we pursue humility this morning? I just want to give us three ways. They're not the only ways. Uh, but I think these three things point out not only how to pursue humility but they also are a test of our hearts to see if there might be any pride in us. And so three very practical ways that we pursue humility that I think James is pointing out to us here in this text. The first one is this. Number one, take an honest assessment. How do I I pursue humility? Number one, take, take an honest assessment. Very simply, humility will never be the reality of your life unless and until you are willing to truly be honest with yourself. Spencer Johnson says this, integrity is telling myself the truth. In fact, honesty is probably the hinge pin that the door of humility and pride will open or close. Unless you're willing to be honest, you will never have an accurate perception of your heart. Let let me say it this way. An honest heart is a humble heart, and a humble heart will be an honest heart. You won't be humble unless you're honest, and you can't be honest unless you're humble. Seeing yourself for who you truly are, this will lead you to humility, I promise you. David Brooks says this, Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself, but accurately of yourself. It is an adequate view of your own nature and a realization that you are not equipped to perform the task that God has asked you to perform. That's humility. An honest assessment. You know what else it does? It will cause your world to expand. Why? Because the world becomes bigger as your world becomes smaller. Right? You've heard it said this way. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Right? And as you think of yourself less, you will start to see the good in others. You will start to recognize your own weaknesses and you will start to understand your need for the strengths in others. You will start to see others in a different light, not as competition, but as a complement to your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, 
just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but there's only one body. That means every one of us has specific strengths and specific weaknesses. Some of us are eyes, and some of us are ears. Some of us are hands. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what you're thinking about other people and what part they are. Here's the implication, though. The implication is that you're going to need some help. The implication is that there is a need for us to belong to one another. Because there's a big difference between belonging to a place and simply attending a place. It's a big difference. There's a big difference between just being together in a room and being fitly joined together. There's a big difference. Ephesians chapter 4 says this. Instead, we will speak the, here's the honest part, we will speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So humility is represented by our honesty and our honesty results in unity. We come together You flank my weaknesses, and I hopefully flank yours. And God puts us together for the building up of the body, for the glory of his name. Now, when you refuse to be a part of that, listen, you weaken yourself. You weaken yourself. Very simple. We're better together. We're better together. So, we pursue humility by taking an honest assessment which causes us to acknowledge and recognize our strengths and our weaknesses. Now listen, that should set you free, friend. You don't have to do everything. You don't have to be everything. You don't have to be superhero. You have certain gifts and abilities given to you by God, so now you are freed up to know what you do well and to focus on that. And you can let other people do the things they're good at. Don't be threatened by them. They're a compliment. They're not competition. Now, for those of you whose propensity, and I have a little bit of this in me, is to focus on your weaknesses and you're convinced that you have no strengths and when you, you just feel like you're so talentless and there's nothing good inside of you that God could ever use and you somehow feel that your lameness somehow disqualifies you from being used by God in a powerful and profound way. For those that think that way, for those that have the propensity to lean that way, first of, way, first of all, I, I'm not taking away from your lameness. That's probably true. Because, because we're all lame. We're all lame. But, but I want you, what, I, what I want you to do is to marvel that God glorifies himself by profoundly using the lame. And Jesus found great pleasure in raising the lame. And their former lameness became a testimony of God's power in their life. We're all lame. Think about it. Think about it. Who in the Bible could be on staff at this church? The Apostle Paul. How, how, how does this interview go? So, uh, hey, about those uh, 150 people that you murdered, uh, you still struggle with that? <laughs> no, I, I, no, I think I'm on the other side of that. Great. You can go work with the kids. Great. Great. Good. Good. That'll work out good. King David. Hey, brother, uh, 
it seems, it seems that you've had a kind of a deal with women. Uh, you seem to kind of sleep around a lot. Is that still a struggle? Uh, well, sometimes. Okay, you're not going to be the worship pastor here. The Bible. The Bible is filled with lame, broken, messy people, and God enters into that space, and he makes much of his name. That his name be glorified. So, of course, of course, it's prideful to think that you don't have any weakness. That's the easy one. But let me say this. It's also prideful and arrogant to think that you're so weak that God can't do anything with you. That's an accusation against God. That's you saying, God, you're not strong enough, you're not powerful enough, and I'm not good enough for you to use because of my lack of my ability. That's foolishness, friend, and it's arrogance. We pursue humility by an honest assessment and seeing ourselves as we accurately are. First and foremost, how do we pursue humility? An honest assessment. Secondly, here's what we do. We never lose the wonder. Never lose the wonder. How do you pursue humility? Say, what do you you mean by that? Never lose the wonder. By that I mean, stay curious. Be inquisitive. Ask questions. Keep learning. Don't lose the awe and the wonder of this amazing world and the God who created it. It's probably, probably one of the most endearing and frustrating characteristics and qualities in children. Their curiosity their wonder. And now, some kids are more curious than others. Some of our kids, when they were two years old, I could leave them in a room and walk away and they would be just fine. Other kids that we've had, I would leave them and, I, and they'd be literally hanging from the banister. I found my daughter hanging from the outside of the banister. Curious. Endearing. And yes, Frustrating. <laughs> But they just find themselves wanting to know. How does that work? How does that happen? What do you mean by that? It's a beautiful thing to watch as your children become intrigued and curious about their world. I don't know of anything more curious than children. I think that's probably why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, he said this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and you become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as, what's the word? Humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, as we get older, we have to be careful not to lose the awe, the wonder, the curiosity about the Lord and his word. Remember what it was like for you believers when it was like when you first got saved? The awe, the the wonder, the bent... The draw as you grow older is that we get crusty, curmudgeony, less curious. We're less impressed. More has to be done to impress us. And we consciously, we have to fight that attitude. Look at what King David said in Psalm chapter 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place... What, this is the question that he asks when he recognizes that. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. So you have David, he's looking up at the stars. He's considering, he is curious. He's in awe and wonder, blown away at the immensity of what he's taking in. And that curiosity has led him to marvel at the majesty and size of God. Which then creates in him humility. Humility. 
when I see this, I, I can't help but say, who am I? Who am I that you would love me and that you would care for me? You want to be stay humble? You want to pursue humility? Never lose the wonder. People that maintain the wonder, they, they continually learn. They challenge themselves. They push themselves. They ask the question, how could I get better? And listen, less than becoming an expert, I'm just suggesting that you commit yourself to the process of growth. People that are humble not only admit that they have room to improve, but they actually do something about it. (laughs) Let, Let me say it this way. Humility is not just the realization that you have more to learn, but it's the recognition that the more you learn, the less you really know. That's humility. I promise you, if you will continue to be curious, learn, Never lose the wonder. When was was the last time you were in awe of God's creation? Here's Here's a telltale sign of someone who has lost the wonder. They never ask questions. They never ask questions. How's that work? Tell me more about that. No, but instead they become the expert. Not easily impressed. Look at Proverbs chapter 1 verse 5. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance in your life, in your relationships, in your ministry, in your life personally, spiritually. Challenge yourself. Don't settle. Don't settle. This might just be a good place to pause for those of us that are married. Let me just make this recommendation. Maintain the wonder in your marriage. Don't take each other for granted. Continue to discover more about one another. Stay in love. Husbands, ask questions. Don't give one-word answers and be bothered. Don't be an arrogant know-it-all. You say, well, how do I know if I'm being a prideful jerk? Ask her. She will tell you. (laughs) Ask her. Honey, am I being a pride? Yes, you are. Ask her and listen to the answer. Listen, don't stop dreaming, creating, learning. Try something new. Pick up a hobby. Stay curious. Never lose the wonder. If you do that, I promise you, you will pursue humility. Okay, finally, the third way that we pursue humility in our lives is this. We make room for others. So we take an honest assessment. We recognize our strengths and our weaknesses, right? Never losing the wonder. And we make room. You want to pursue humility? Learn to acknowledge the gift that people are, what they provide, how they help, how they serve, how they enhance your life. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And the more you see the day approaching. Listen, the closer we get to the end times, the more you're going to need other people in your life. You're going to have to make space. You're going to have to make room in your life. People that don't pursue relationship convince themselves that they don't need people in their life. That is pride. We're good. 
We're just going to huddle up here and stay in the comfort of what is controllable. People that think they don't need relationship would rather have control than being known. It's pride. It's pride. It's been one of the themes of this book of James that we love so much. We're able to spot and encourage the strengths of others around us. And we focus less on how people fall short and more on how they excel and where God is at work in their lives. And we tell them that we see God at work in their lives, acknowledging the strengths of others. Here's what we're saying. No one has all the gifts. No one is king but Jesus. That's what we're saying. We make room for others. Nobody is everything. We need one another, so we need to acknowledge, speak life, encourage those who have shaped and molded us and have spoken into us and have comforted us and confronted us, who have built us up. We need to make room for others. In fact, maybe, maybe this morning, we just pause, mentally pause, for just a few moments and think about the people that God has brought into our lives. People that have influenced our lives for the better in such immeasurable ways. They, they literally changed the trajectory of our lives. And not from a distance, but from up close and in person, down in the trenches with you. Could be a coach, could be a, a boss, could be a teacher, could be a pastor, a mentor, a friend. Uh, just take a moment, reflect. The people that God has brought into my life. Very simply, success in your life will not be attained without the right people coming along at the right time. Because if your success is solely contingent upon your hard work, friend, you are prideful. Here's the question. Are you making room for people in your life? Are you opening yourself up to relationship? Is there even enough space for someone to walk into? Or have you filled your life up so greatly that there isn't even room for another person? Are you shutting others out, convinced that they won't understand or they're inevitably going to hurt me and the risk isn't... What is it that's holding you back from making room? Here's what I do know. We can point to all of the failures and all of the successes in our lives to the people that are in our lives. I promise you. Let me, let me say it this way. You will never do all that God wants you to do without the right people in your life. You will never accomplish all that he wants to do in you. So if you shut people out, you are limiting what God can do in your life. Never forget, never forget this. You are one relationship away from totally transforming your destiny. One relationship. But you've got to make room. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. Since we are all one body in Christ. We belong to each other. Now, you guys think we make up these little cutesy marketing phrases. We belong to each other, and each of us needs all of the others. You belong. Turn, turn to the next person sitting next to you and say, you need me. 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 Tell them. You need me. Now, now turn to the person that was your second choice and you tell them too, you need me too, yeah. I'm a second choice, but you still, I still need you. You need me. <laughs> second choice, but I still need you. 
It's the pursuit of humility. We take an honest assessment of our lives. Your heart, your motives, your thoughts, your agenda. Never lose the wonder, friend. Keep pursuing more. Don't stop dreaming. Don't stop being curious. Make room for others. Create space in your life. So now that we've defined how to pursue humility, let's go very quickly back to the text and we'll bring this to a close. James chapter 4, verse 15, back to the text. Instead, what you ought to say is this. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Now, is James teaching that we shouldn't have future plans, that we shouldn't make plans, that every plan we make, we have to add the little caveat, well, if God wills, I will do this and that. No, that's not what James is saying. He's not saying that future plans are sinful or wrong, because the, honestly, the Bible views planning and preparation as a virtue. The Proverbs are filled with wisdom of planning and executing a plan. In fact, planning often reveals humility in that it reiterates the idea that we don't know what tomorrow holds. So therefore, because I don't know, I'm going to do some planning and make sure that my family's taken care of. It reveals humility because I I don't know what holds tomorrow. What, What is held in tomorrow? Planning is not wrong. It's not sinful. James' point is that our future plans, which are right and good, should be informed by, fueled by, driven by a greater reality. It's what's driving your plans that ultimately matters. James's argument is that our faith is not just this segmented part of our lives, but it's integrated into everything we do, everything we consider, all that we set our minds to do. Colossians chapter 3. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Allow me to just simplify this. Since then, if you're a Christian, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I love this phrase in in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, then you also will appear with him. All of our plans, the fuel, the weight, the drive of all that we're doing is this, Christ who is our life. I want to live financially in a very generous way. Why? Because Christ is my life. I want to love my wife well because Christ is my life. I want to consider my time here, how I steward my influence, what I do with my days because Christ is my life. It's not, it's not, I have work, and I have my home, I have my relationship with Christ, I have my hobbies, and I have my friends. No, 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 no. But in our arrogance, what we basically say is, no, no, this is mine. I'll give you yours on Sunday, but leave my other stuff alone. No, it's all, all integrated together. That, that would be like me saying to Ashley, leave me alone, it's not date night. What? Yeah, we all know how that would go down. Yeah. It's not how we're to live. Christ, who is my life, all that I do is driven by this reality. Retirement plans, 401ks, they're not bad. There's nothing wrong with that at all. They're just driven by Christ, who is our life. That's James's argument. Let me just ask this. What part of your life have you been unwilling to surrender to Christ? What, what part of your life don't you trust him with? And here's the second part of his argument there in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. 
So in light of the pursuit of humility and the exposure of pride, not only are we to make Christ our life and see everything we do through that lens, but now you have this relentless pursuit of obedience. And I love, I love James's take on it because he's not saying this. He's not saying, are you doing the things that you know you shouldn't do? It's not what he says. No, it's actually far more invasive and far more aggressive than that. He says this, are you doing the right things that you know you should be doing? Because if you're not doing what you already know you should be doing, that's a sin too. So much of our mindset is this, help me not to do what's wrong. I got this list of things and if I don't do those things, I'm in good standing with God. That's not what James is. He says that's not enough. Are you doing what you know is right? Because to do the things that you know is right is an admittance. It's It's a characteristic of humility. But to not do the good that you know you ought to do. This is a relentless pursuit of obedience. Good old James, huh? James without the cross is a crushing book. It's crushing beneath the weight of the truth. No matter how old you get, he will always read your mail and show your shortcomings over and over and over again. Here's what I want you to know, though. It's actually a gift to your life because it brings us back to our hope over and over and over again. It reminds us of our need for him. That's what it does. Last verse for the day, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. God says this, but to this one I will look. The NIV says, these are the ones that I look on with favor. It's these people. To the person who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. May may our lives, may this church be rooted in humility so that the true wisdom, the walls of wisdom can be built and all the fruit of that wisdom might be born in us. May that be so. An honest assessment. Breaking the mirror doesn't change the reality of what you really look like. You've got to look in the mirror. And with God's grace, with the Holy Spirit, you've got to ask the hard questions. Is there anything in me, God? An honest assessment. Never lose the wonder of his goodness, of his grace, of his provision, of his faithfulness, of his creation. Never lose the wonder, friend. And make room. Some of you, some of you are going to have to start saying no to some things so that you can create some space in your life for the gift of people. You're going to have to consciously, intentionally choose to do that. Do you receive that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for joining us. If you want to join us on Sunday, we meet at 1030 a.m. right next to Wilson Central High School or check us out online at connectchurchtn.com. Thanks so much and have a blessed day.